Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to episode 166 of the Galen Trombley Show. My guest today um, is Dar- Dr. Harvey Chance. He is a professor of political science at Plattsburgh State. You were, um, I just told you before we came on, you were a recommendation to have you on the episode um, or have you on the podcast for an episode and looking and kind of doing a little research on, on you, um, figured that you sounded like you did some cool things and, and some interesting topics that I'm sure that you can expand on and that will be uh, interesting to learn about. But um so Harvey, for people that do not know you, kind of give us a background on who you are and how you came to be 2020, almost 2022, but 2021, uh, Harvey. Well, um, my name is Harvey Shantz. I'm a professor of political science at SUNY Plattsburgh. I've taught there um, over 42 years. And um, to become a professor of political science, you have to um, get a doctorate in political science. So. My political science really begins when I um, started graduate school at Johns Hopkins University in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and I got a master's degree in political science and a PhD in political science with a concentration, if you have to say it, in Congress and congressional elections. So my doctoral dissertation was on primary elections for the U.S. House of Representatives. And that topic is very interesting because it puts you in the middle of all of American politics. Because a primary election, you have to look into the field of voting behavior. And the field of voting behavior over the years has become my main field. And you also have to look into Congress. And Congress was initially my main field And then you also have to look into political parties, and political parties are my third um, field. And so years ago, when I was coming out, I look into a uh, job letter that the American Political Science Association um, runs where colleges, universities advertise for jobs. And so I sent my resume into SUNY Plattsburgh, and they called me up and said if I would want to come up for an interview, and that's how it works. And then um, you go up through the ranks. So I started as assistant professor and then moved up the ranks. So um, coming to Plattsburgh was just kind of a job opening, and that's through your name in hat and it came up? That's right. I was born into um, New York State, and I grew up in New York State. So I was familiar with the SUNY system. I knew a person who went here to college as an undergraduate from my own um, high school. And so it was something that I was aware of. It seemed to be at my level of um, achievement, not a national top university, and also not a uh, 
community college. It was what I was looking for, a four-year college where I could be the main expert on American government. So um, how was how it? You've been here since the late 70s, right? That's right. And at any point, did you ever move away, or do you always stay at Plattsburgh State? I've always stayed at um, Plattsburgh State. I took one year off, and I spent a year as a um, visiting fellow at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And that was very um, beneficial to me because I had done my studies at Johns Hopkins, and I learned a lot about elections, and I learned a lot about um, Congress, and I spent a year on Capitol Hill as a um, what's called a Congressional Fellow of the American Political Science Association, where I worked in the office of a um, U.S. Senator. Uh, it was the Senate um, Committee and a um, member of the U.S. House, a member of the House from um, Texas. And so that gave me insight. So then when I was ready to take my first sabbatical from um, SUNY Plattsburgh, a professor at Yale University who I um, was aware of and who knew me asked if I'd like to come there for a year, not to be a professor there, but to be a visiting fellow, which means I would study with him. And that enriched my education as well. And so during my years at Plattsburgh, in my early years, I continued my education. For example, one summer I went to NYU and I was what they called a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow. And there I studied the presidency. So one thing I have is a lot of education. I've got my master's and my PhD from Johns Hopkins. I've studied survey research and voting behavior at the University of Michigan program one summer. I studied the Congress on Capitol Hill for a year. I've studied the um, one other uh, thing that I um, can't think of at this uh, point. So I've studied all of these different uh, places. So that I prepared to become a professor, and that's really what I am. So what got you into political science? When I started college, there was one fellow student who was a senior. I was a freshman, and he was going to graduate school to the University of Chicago for a PhD in political science. So he seemed pretty happy about it, and so I started to think about it in those terms. And then you go to classes and you see the professors teaching and they become sort of a role model. So then I thought I might try to go and become a professor of political science. I was very interested in getting a doctorate in political science. And so I applied to schools and Johns Hopkins said they were interested in giving me a fellowship to go and study with them. And they had one professor in particular that I wanted to um, work with, but there was the second one who eventually became my um, first um, dissertation reader, and then it was a very uh, satisfactory experience. Um, so as a kid growing up, it was like 
was was politics big big in your house? Was it or the psychology or science? Like I said, obviously political science. Um, but was there anything that gravitated you towards that? Or when you went to college, were you undecided? Were you? I was always a political science major, but I wasn't overly motivated. I really was looking for a um, direction without um, actually thinking about it. But an early student, a few classes, some role models that helped me. And then it really wasn't a tough decision. I just moved into it. Yeah. And, and was once you got the political science degrees, was it always wanting to be a professor to teach it, to, to, to have others learn about it? Did you have another pathway you could have went? Well, I was interested in what they call research. Research is publishing in political science. And so when I first started out, I did a lot of um, research into political science. So I had some early successes with topics that came out of my master's degree and my um, doctoral dissertation. So because my dissertation and master's degree was on congressional primary elections, I had some good articles that came out on congressional primaries in good, strong journals. And then I had a couple of articles that came out on how Congress passed full employment bills. Then I started shifting toward presidential elections, and I had some good stuff come out on presidential elections. So as a college professor, you really split between two paths. One path is the research path of trying to get stuff published after you've worked on it for years. And the other path is teaching. So when you're at a college like we are, it's about three quarters of teaching and one quarter of research. If you were at a university, it would be about 50-50 split on um, that. In a community college setting, it's primarily about the teaching. So when you start off, you are heavily into research, and then you focus more on teaching as time um, went on. So when, how do you break that up in, in your like, career now? Obviously, political science, the, I would say the general premises of political science are probably the same, the general themes, but obviously everything changes, everything adapts, it grows. I mean, political science from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s to today are different. Um, so how do you go about learning new, new tactics or tricks or, or philosophies or themes within political science over that time? And then I guess like day to day, how do you break that up? Like, do you spend like, what's a, you know, let's start there. Let's go. How has things changed from when you started to now? Like what has evolved? What has, what has stayed the same? Um, how have you evolved in that whole process as being, you know, someone that's taking the information and now giving it out to others? Political science has been relatively stable since after World War II. Now, that, what that means is that after World War II, there was a big expansion of political science in the country as higher education spread and more people started to study. And so one of the fields that was mapped out after World War II was the field of voting behavior. Voting behavior is the study 
as to what are the motivations of why people vote the way they do in an election. And there's three ways that you can look at it. You can look at it in a geographic focus. What states or what counties vote Democratic and which vote Republican? And what are the economic and social characteristics of those geographic units? You also look at it in demographics. What ages, what races, what religions, what genders vote Democratic and vote Republican? And you can look at it through the psychological attitudinal. And what that means is you say, do people vote because of their party identification or are they voting in an election because of the issue positions or because of their like or dislike for particular candidates? So that was developed by 1960. The basic theories were set out. So one of my professors at Johns Hopkins, he was very much involved in the discussion as to how people vote and what are the reasons that they vote. Public opinion is very close to voting behavior because a lot of people vote based upon their opinion. So public opinion grew up also after World War II, but started a little bit earlier with the um, polls that um, were held for presidential election. So then when you look at it, the study of Congress and the presidency also grew up after World War II. People started to go to Congress to study the way members of Congress operate and how they perform their jobs. So I did that for a year, observing the way Congress operated. And then I always had to study the presidency as well because that was in my job description. And so I enriched that by going to NYU as a, a fellow and studying the presidency after I had my doctorate from, um, on Congress. And then my third field is political parties and interest groups. Now, political parties and interest groups have always been central to American government. And that comes with the territory. So you have to really know your parties and interest groups as well. And I brushed up on that in graduate school, but also when I went to Yale for the year. And then the way you keep up is at a younger age, you're reading the journals. At an older age, such as I find myself now, I'm reading the textbooks. So every textbook I use has a new edition every two years. So every two years, I read the textbooks that come out, and that's how I keep up. Now, newer people coming along have newer theories and newer methods of analysis, but they can be put into my earlier frameworks. So when I got my doctorate and became a professor at Plattsburgh, I barely could fill up all my classes because I only knew my doctoral work and a couple of other things. But once you teach for over 40 years, you know a lot. So I'm much more knowledgeable now than I was when I started. However, I'm less likely to produce cutting edge. 
So my most cited article was published back in 1980. It grew out of my doctoral dissertation. And it still gets cited in uh, various books. The highlight, I would have to say, was a research book that came out in 1996 called American Presidential Elections. If you want to know more, I'll uh, have you ask another question. No, you, go, you, you can go right into that because that was one of the things. I know you had two, contributed two books in American politics. So American Presidential Elections, Process, Policy, and Political Change. That was the one yes. you're referring to? That, what happened was, and I can remember very um, distinctly how this um, worked. I had studied congressional elections and in the summer of 87, I had a, a good article, didn't go far in the uh, textbooks, but it was pretty good on inter-party competition for congressional seats. And in it, I showed that the regions of the country, in terms of their competition for congressional seats, were becoming more similar. So electoral patterns in the South were becoming more similar to electoral patterns in the Midwest. So I was sitting at a desk in the summer of 87, and I said, how can I take my concept that I used for congressional elections and apply it to the study of presidential elections? So I started going down that path, and I came up with a thesis built on the work of other people that there was an erosion of sectionalism in presidential elections since the 1960s. And I worked very hard on this. It was a 23-page article in a good journal. And it went back to presidential elections of 1888. And it got published. And that gave me momentum. And so I... Again, SUNY Plattsburgh has been very supportive of uh, my research through the years, so I really benefited from SUNY Plattsburgh. So I went to Dr. David Mowry, who was a very uh, prestigious... Was he an uh, honors professor? Yes. I, I had him my freshman year. Yeah. So, so we'll talk about your years here as well. Uh, Dr. David Mowry was a very prestigious professor, and political science was across the hall from the honors program at the time. And I said that I would like to organize a lecture series on the presidential election. He said, well, that sounds good. What is the honors program going to get out of it? And, you know, in not so many words, because we... Uh, pretty friendly with each other. So I said, and I want to do an honors seminar called Seminar on Elections. And so I did a, a seminar on elections, and I started the process of inviting professors to the um, college. So my professor from Johns Hopkins came up for two weeks, and he and Maori became pretty uh, good friends. And then when the next presidential election cycle came, what I did was, instead of having my one professor come up for two weeks, I had him come up for a lecture. And I invited my 
professor from Yale to come up for a lecture. And then I had a professor come up from UConn and one from Rutgers. All of these were slightly older than me at the time because I was trying to work with people who would lend prestige to my name. And they came up and the agreement was they would give a lecture at the school that I would get them money from what was called the Distinguished Visiting Professors Fund. In exchange for that, I would teach a one-credit class and be on the Honors Council for uh, Dr. Mowry. And they would, in turn, create out of their lecture a book chapter. And I would take the book chapters and find a publisher for the work. So this was very, um, it wasn't as stressful as the second book, but this um, became a big project. So what I did was I took my work on erosion of sectionalism that started in 1888, and I went back to 1824. And it became sectionalism in presidential elections. And my professor from Johns Hopkins, he wrote a chapter, the 1992 presidential election in historical perspective. And my professor from Yale wrote, presidential elections and policy change, is there any connection? And then professor from Rutgers wrote a chapter on Alive, the political parties after the election of 92. And the one for um, Yukon was on voting behavior and the rise of independence voting in um, the early 90s because of um, Ross Perot. So then I worked as, as much I, as I could with each of the um, four contributors who had many other important things to do. But I finally got the chapters together and I sent it to SUNY Press in Albany. SUNY Press in Albany then sent it out to two reviewers. So after they sent it out to two reviewers, they said, well, we're interested in this book, but we need a little bit more. Can you write a chapter on how we elect presidents? So I, I didn't really have a choice, so I ended up writing a 40-page printed chapter on how we elect presidents. And then we worked on the title of the book and that became American Presidential Elections. So that was a successful book in, um, in my uh, career. The second book was a follow-up and was more pressure because I... Um, I'm guaranteeing to people I can get your chapter published if you send it to me, but then I have to find a publisher. And my editor at SUNY Press had left by then, and the new editor wasn't as interested. <coughs> and so then I found another press, Rutledge Press in New York um, City. So editing was pretty um, 
pretty pre uh, pressure packed because you're in the middle. You have to get the contributors to give you their chapters and then you have to get someone to publish it. Now I'm not at the stage or never have been where someone's going to say whatever you give me I'm publishing. Every thing I've gotten has been through um, show it to me and then we'll think about what we want to um, do with that. So how, when, to write one of those books what's the entire process of that? Like <clears throat> maybe I mean from like a time perspective of hey I have the idea I want to write a book to the part where it's actually finalized and finished. It takes a long process and that's kind of um, discouraging. For someone like me, it takes um, years because academic publishing is very quote unquote rigorous and slow. And so first you have to do the work. Then you have to get it peer reviewed where experts in the field look at it and think about whether they like it or not. And then you have to revise it. Then you have to um, see it through to publication. Now there's a couple of people in the field who are quick at it. Those are slightly different books. Those are more public affairs books, but a political science book is difficult. And that's a problem with academic writing. Like I have a lot of writing, but until I see it in print or get it accepted, it's really nothing of an accomplishment. So I, so all the articles I've had, they've gone through this process. And so first you invest the time and then you try to get it um, published. So, um, like, so writing a book, like the actual, I should say the process also, um, so the, the process also of writing the book is like a lot of, there's research obviously done for it, but when you, are you required to write books on like as a, in your profession, is this more of kind of a side thing that you're like, Hey, I, I have interest in it. I like researching. I like developing, you know, the articles, the stories, the books on that. Or it's something that when you sign up for a political science, you know, professor that the college expects you to hit like a certain quota or a certain, you know, level of, of whether it be print or whether it be publications or is there, is that a thing? Yes, you are expected to do it, but it's inculcated in you as well. So when you start graduate school, your professors let you know that you're a junior colleague and you're going to be publishing as much as uh, you can based on what we're going to um, teach you here. So when I went to graduate school, and my two professors are, became some of my best uh, friends, so I refer to them a lot. But one had a best-selling textbook on American government. But every four years, he would come out with a new edition. And he would be overwhelmed in work, but that was expected of him. And my other professor, my first footnote was in the um, preface of a 1976 book he had called Leadership in Congress. And so you get the bug. I had my first article came out in 1976, and that grew out of a 
paper I wrote for my master's thesis. So I had that as well. But when you come to SUNY Plattsburgh, you're expected to produce scholarship if you want to get tenure. And so you feel the pressure initially to um, do that. So I had a series of articles that came out right away, and then I got tenure. So you don't really have to worry about me. They voted me tenure in 1984. So I've been set. <laughs> but then you want to become full professor. So they voted me full professor in 1994. But after that, it's inculcated within you. You really become your research. You really become your work. When you're doing the research, baseball loses some of its interest, comedians don't seem as funny, and you're focused on your work. So by the time that the first book came out, I was already a, uh, in my sixth year, fifth, sixth year of being a department chairman, was already two years past being a full professor, but I was more motivated than ever before. And so you become socialized into wanting to do that. As you get older, as I have, the drive might um, abate and you're not as interested in that. There's different patterns. Some people do a lot early and then they tail off. Others do it in mid-career. But now that I'm older, I see that the people who are most successful have done it their whole lives. And um, I look up to them and admire them. I didn't realize that a career in academics can go through your whole life cycle like that. So there's different models that um, people use. So are you, are you always, do you always have a project going on outside of, of the classroom? Like... Yes, um, I, I do. That's not to say I complete all of them. But there's always something I have in the drawer that's not completed. There's always something that um, I'm thinking of. One way you can get around that and get something on the board without completing your work is to give what they call conference papers. So as I got more senior, I started to go to conferences, as I had done when I first started, and present some of my findings to a small group. And that's called a conference paper. A conference paper is not as good as a published work in terms of how you are evaluated at a college or nationally. And so uh, you can do that as well. Um, so voter behavior, well, I'm going to go right down the three that you've, you've talked about. Yes. So voter behavior, um, I've been, I voted, let me see, I, I, the 2008 election was my first presidential election, and then I voted in everything since, like all the elections since. So when I look at like voter behavior, I'm kind of, I, I my realm of voter behavior is definitely in the last probably 15 years, 10 to 15 years. So when I look at that, I mean, kind of explain voter behavior, like how would you, what do you focus on? Obviously you talked about geographically, you talked about, um, you know, demographics, you talked about, um, but just trying to learn all that, like, I mean, that just seems, it's, it seems tough. Obviously, you look at political, you know, news outlets, they're talking about, you know, this 
minority is going to have a major major play in this city. You're going to have these people down in this city. You get the the women down in this area. You have the you know the older people up in this area. It, and it, it, I mean, there is a tr- true science to it, especially when these people are going out for national politics. They know where they have to spend their time with where they have to campaign, where they have to put more focus in. Um, so, do you dive all into that? You know, yes, all of that becomes. Um, so, voter behavior looks at the micro, the individual person, and then looks at the macro, the overall voting patterns. What you're referring to is campaigning, and that we look into as well. So. When, so let me ask you a question. When you vote in a presidential election, is there anything that you, um, what is it that you um, like about the de- like or dislike about the Democratic Party? So if I was, you mean the process or the individual candidates? Um, so I'm going to ask you. So in the last presidential election. We had two candidates, the Democrat and the Republican. So before we get to the candidates, let me ask you about the parties. Is there anything you like or dislike about the Democratic Party? Yeah, absolutely. You mean the, the, Demo- what is that? the, the political Democratic Party? Yes. Um, so if I had to dive in, like, there's certain things that I... So I'm going to take both of them. So if you take the Republic, because I guess it's probably the easier way for me to explain it. So the Democrats and Republicans, I'm, I would deem myself a fairly moderate person, meaning that I think most of my economic, um, you know, let's call it economic fiscal, that, that kind of realm, I lean more with the Republican side. My social issues, most of that stuff leans more towards the uh, Democratic side. So when I kind of go down through each individual candidate, I typically go by from a whole because I find that national politics, if I had to look at national politics, very rarely am I going to get someone that checks all the boxes because it's too wide, widespread, where if I limit it down to local politics, typically there's people that I would point to and be like that person, I think because of the person. And I think a lot of local politics, I know the person. I find that by that gives me more um, and I, I'll, I'll get to your question. So the the idea with local politics, if somebody has a you know a letter next to their name that symbolizes a political party, half the time I don't even know what it is because I just know the person. And I vote on who I think would be a good representation of us, someone that I know I think could get the job done. Um, a little bit on their beliefs and everything, but I think most of the stuff locally, people tend to agree upon most issues. Um, at the local level, national level, it gets very politicized, gets very split down the middle. Like if you vote this and you don't agree with them and that, I don't really transcribe to picking a certain candidate based on all the boxes that they check. I think the reason certain things I dislike um, from a democratic standpoint, um, I think certain ways they go about it, it it's it's tough to pinpoint because there's so many dynamics. But I'm trying to think of of the best route to take on this. So if let me like, is there is there a specific like I guess it's hard to say, but like a specific topic I guess would be okay. So I could analyze you as a voter, and you look like what they would call a level A voter. A level A voter is someone who votes based upon issues and ideology. Mm-hmm. Now, when they study this, 
This is called an open-ended question, and they throw it out there, and they want to see how the respondent speaks about their likes and dislikes about candidates and about um, political parties. And so you gave ideological and issue positions as to why you lean toward one party or the other. So that's a level A voter. A level B voter would vote and like a party because of their group benefit or affiliation. So if I were a union member, I might like the Democratic Party because they're pro-union. Or if I was a small business person, I might like the Republican Party because they're for small business. Other voters might be a level C voter. A level C voter is a voter that's voting on the nature of the times. Mm -hmm. Things seem well, I'm going to vote with the party that's in power. And finally, a level D voter would be someone who is voting without any particular issue content, but just on the idea that we, my family, my friends, we all vote for this party or the other. Now, a very big concept in voter decision-making is party identification. I don't want to put you on the spot. So how that works is people are asked, ordinarily in politics, people think of themselves as a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent. What do you think of yourself as? And if they say, I think of myself as a Democrat, then you ask them, is that a very strong Democrat or not so strong? And if they say independent, they say, do you lean toward one party or the other? And that gives us a seven-point party identification scale, from strong Democrat to weak Democrat, independent-leaning Democrat, pure independent, independent-leaning Republican, weak Republican, strong Republican. And then political science correlates that with how often they vote for their party. I, I would deem... Based on the scale you just said, I think I'm independent leaning, independent leaning Republican. If I had to pick where I would be on that scale, I think if I most of my voting on the national level for me, I tend to vote more Republican on my on the local level. Again, I don't really know what I vote on the person. I'd say majority are actually Democrats locally the, of the people that I know in in position. Perfect example, I, Mike Cashman, Billy Jones are all Democrats. I vote for, I like both those guys very much. I, you know, I vote for the person more so than the, um, the actual political party because I think that they're a good leader at that. When it gets to national politics, I end up leaning more, I think, on the conservative side because most of my issues that I would lean on the Democratic side, while I agree with a lot of those issues, um, my... My thought is that most social issues over time, because of social changes, social, um, uh, whether you want to call it generational changes, typically end up evolving and progressing towards where the, like, perfect example, I take things that were my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation, my generation, my kids' generation. So if I look at all that, I know that stuff we're doing right now with our kid, my kids is different than that was done with me and was different than my grandparents with my parents as to what we're seeing and what we're, we're dealing with and, and how the world's been, you know, has evolved. Now I do think that a lot of social issues, um, one of the things that I really dislike is the, the social issue where social issues are 
at play and people are leaning into the social issues as a competitive advantage, which I get people have competitive advantage. I find like if in the terms of um, like we had, you know, a lot of last year we had, you know, you had Black Lives Matters, you had, um, you know, you start dealing with, um, you know, that, that was that was a major one. Um, political correctness is a big thing nowadays. You have all these things that lean where I think at the end of the day, you know, I look at from like an equality standpoint, I just treat people like people. Like I don't, I don't look at someone that has minority classification that they're any different. Yes. Could they be different than me? Yes. I'm white. I'm straight. I'm married. I have kids. I, you know, you know, I have that background, but if somebody came and was, you know, black and was gay and had came from a different area, I wouldn't look at that person as being, I mean, they have different characteristics, I guess, or qualities or whatever you want to group that in. But if I'm talking to a one-on-one, to me, they're just a person. So I don't, I don't, I don't like the idea and people do it. It's like you lean in more to a certain demographic and uh, it's actually funny. We were watching a TV show. Have you seen the morning show at all on Apple? It, it's so it's kind of like does like a morning TV show, but they're getting into a scene where you like, we need to put, you know, we can't put two straight white women on, on, the presidential debate thing. We need to have a minority on there. We have, cause they're all, t- they're trying to appease all these different groups and people. And there's a science to that where to me, it's like, who's the best person for the job. But I know that's not how the world works. There's people that will, you know, same thing in politics. Like the best person doesn't necessarily always win. In the national scale, I look at like the, um, you know, presidential election very much comes down to, there's a lot of psychological, there's a lot, a lot of, uh, um, popularity. It's a lot of, what I would deem watching the news is the media, I do believe, gives news, but I also believe that the news nowadays is more news with opinion, where it's not, you know, I, I look at, I try to cut through the opinion pieces of it, and I try my best to look at everything at face value as to what the candidates stand for, what they go for, and not, you know, a spin that people are trying to, trying to put a narrative on elections and t- on, on, uh, on people that are running for office. And I think because there's people you can you can find information on both sides that are going to build that person up or tear them down. And I think for me, I look at as a whole. If I'm like if you were to say, does this topic make sense? And I, in in my eyes, I would look at it and say, this to me seems a logical way that that topic would be. You know, and you know what what like the vaccine. People have talked about the vaccination, like that's become a hot button topic and COVID and everything. So then I look at something like that as being a, a pretty politically charged, like between last year with Black Lives Matters, this year with the political, um, you know, politicalization, I think, of the vaccine, how does that, you know, kind of cutting through what's right and what's wrong? Like, should you get the vaccine? Should you not get the vaccine? And I was talking about this the other day. It's, I think, me, I, I look at it as you get your information however you want to consume. I consume information different than you, different than the person down the street, but everybody has their own opinions. And I look at it as, I'm very much of just do whatever you think is best for yourself. And I don't ever go to somebody like I want to go to somebody and say, you have to get vaccinated or don't have to get vaccinated. And I don't make someone feel bad if they are or aren't vaccinated. Cause that's a thing I'm seeing now where, you know, people are like shaming people one way or the other or arguing one way or the other. And to me, it's like, why, why is this politicized? It's, it's like anything else. If you want to do it, then go do it. If it's, but I think people need to make the choice just for themselves and not push the narrative on somebody else or, make someone it's like like who would you vote for and then people bash you if you vote for someone that was different and it's like well 
I have my own mind. I can think the way I want to think. And if maybe it doesn't, it's not an agreeable opinion to somebody else or we don't agree on the same same thing doesn't make my opinion or your opinion worse or, or better. It's just we each have our differing, differencing of, of opinion, uh, which I'm assuming ties right into the voter behavior. Well, you've given a lot of... Um, yeah, you can break that down however you want. You're, uh, you know way more about this than I do. Well, let's hope so. But I, um, I would say this. You, you touched on a number of things. One thing we talk about is why are different age groups different than other age groups. And there's a number of ways you can look at it. For example, let's say we find that older people are more conservative than younger people. Now, one way of looking at and trying to explain that is what they call the life cycle. The life cycle idea is that as people get older, they become more conservative. And so older people, when voting behavior started, tended to be more Republican than younger people. And so it seemed like it was a life cycle. But then you get into what's called the generational explanation. And what that means is that people are stamped with their political orientations based upon the age in which they reached political maturity between the years of 17 and 26. And so... As the very oldest people left the uh, electorate, the oldest people were more democratic for a short while. And the reasoning was generational. They came of age during the FDR years, where the oldest Republicans, they had come of age during the Roaring Twenties, when it was normal to be Republican. Then you can have what they call a compositional effect. Younger people are more liberal on social issues, as you say. Is that because of their age when they grew up, or is it because among younger people there's a greater percentage that were exposed to higher education and a liberal media, and they became liberal for that reason, a compositional effect? So. This good social scientist is able to try to break that down and try to see why generations are um, different um, from each other. And you also said that you're an issue voter. What an issue voter is, is a voter who votes based upon the issues in a campaign rather than the issues of what their political party is. So rather than voting based upon your party identification, you vote based upon the issues. Now, what has really torn the country apart is what political scientists and the media call political polarization. The reason we're so polarized is that the Democrats and Republicans have sorted themselves out and conservatives have all moved to the Republicans and liberals to the Democrats. And those Democrats who were conservative, they've become more liberal to be with their party. And conservative Republicans have welcomed more liberal Republicans into the conservative ranks as well. And that's what you touched on as political um, polarization. A lot of people are pointing to the media. When I was growing up, there were three 
news channels, and we got our news from ABC, NBC, and CBS. And so typically I would see news and have a um, Peter Jennings with the news on ABC, and that would be my source of news. But today people have a segmented news um, cast. And so people who lean conservative watch Fox television news. And people who lean liberal listen to CNN news. And this tends to reify or solidify different groups without a sharing of views. And so the country has really a polarization of the parties and of the media that's influencing voters as well. Um, I mean, I think there's also, there's two, well, when I look at like media, because again, that's how people consume, and now that's 24 seven, because you can get information all the time in real time. And like you, like you said, it's not, you're waiting for the six o'clock news for Walter Conkright or Peter Jennings to come on and give you all the information. Like I can go on right now on my phone and look up an article that came out two minutes ago and read about it for whatever topic it is. I do think, that media, because they can be gatekeepers to information, and I think now with social media that I can produce content and you can produce content and everybody can produce content, you start to see different um, – some of those obviously are opinion pieces. Some of those are just real life like, hey, they said this on the news, but this is what's really happening. You can start to cut through some stuff, but you also add a lot more opinions in because people can generate whatever – you know their thesis on whatever that topic is. But I find that – no matter what, humans are human. So there's always going to be media bias because it naturally, if you're writing something or producing something, it tends to come out somehow. And I think I, in my mind, if somebody were to put something on the news and say it was to bash one, I say they were not necessarily out to bash a candidate, but maybe the clip they show was a little more pro one side than the other. That might have happened naturally as they were going through and filtering through their, you know, whatever their system in their head worked out, they like, hey, that one fits. Maybe it's a little more biased, but me picking, I'm the one that's in charge of picking out the article. Therefore, I can kind of choose, you know, and have that, what goes out to everybody else. And maybe they're not trying to be biased, but I think that as with anything, it tends to just, it, we're human, it comes through. Like I, if I have a conversation with you about something, naturally I'm going to have opinions that come out in my conversation, even though I'm not trying to lean you one way or the other. It's just through my life experience or my views. But I think that the media, I, I do think the media, um, I do think some of the media is, is harmful. I do think some of the media gets bad raps. I think there's, like I've had journalists on here before and they, they've talked about it. Like, no, we really try to do the news the best we can. And I take that at face value that they are 100% trying to do a very unbiased, here's, here's the news, you make your opinion based on what we're presenting. Uh, but I do think that there's always going to be a level of bias in anything you do, like just because it's, it's, we all live different lives, we have different experiences, different backgrounds. What you refer to is what political scientists call agenda setting. Agenda setting is the idea that the media tells us what's important. They're not telling us what we should think, but they're telling us what we should think about. And so when research was done about this in the 1970s and 80s, agenda setting was very subtle and you couldn't always find it. And so they would do experimental studies. You would read in the books and journals, they show two groups, one group a newscast and another group with a newscast with a study of defense spending spliced in or a 
an issue on environment spliced in. And then they found, lo and behold, the people who watched the news with those issues included felt those issues were more important. You might remember years ago, CBS had something like the, the National Agenda or something like that. They'd have an environmental story. That's agenda setting, taking an issue that is not necessarily page one, but putting it in the newspaper. Years ago, I never did a study, but I was interested in urban sprawl. And there was a lot of articles on urban sprawl. There was agenda setting by the media. These days, though, agenda setting is so apparent that you don't have to prove it anymore. So if you go on Fox News, you see stories on the southern border. And you see stories about the supply chain. And if you go on CNN, you see stories about January 6th. What that means is that each of the newscasts is telling us what they think is important. And that leads to what political scientists and others call priming, priming of voters. So if I watch a newscast and they're always talking about the southern border, then when you ask me what I think about President Biden, I'm thinking about the southern border. And that influences my view of President Biden. But if I'm watching CNN and they're talking about January 6th, and you ask me what I think about President Trump, I'm not thinking about the good that the wall would do, but I'm thinking about how we had the, his supporters and the January 6th problems at the Capitol. So that's called priming. So when you do a news story before an election, are you going to talk about something that the candidate is proud about talking about, or are you going to talk about a story that is bad for the candidate? And so a liberal station will highlight stories that are bad for Republican Trump, and a conservative station will highlight stories that are bad for Democrat Biden. So when we think of Biden or Trump, we are primed to have that in our minds. And that gets into a subtle way of media influence. It's gone beyond that now, but in agenda setting, they don't tell us how to think, but they tell us what to think about. And if we're thinking about it, it primes what we think about the candidates who are then running for office. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think, I mean, I, I, that is, you talked about before, like if somebody's a very hardcore conservative Republican, they watch Fox News, they get the same, they basically get um, almost like the agreement like they want to watch somebody that's agreeing with them. And then same thing with CNN and, and Democrats and liberals. And, but the pro like one of the things I like, of course I like about the podcast too, is I talk to a bunch of different people. So like I hear people's opinions and different, you know, backgrounds and different, you know, and, and I kind of, it allows me to see stuff through many people's eyes, just having a conversation. I think that a lot of people, I don't have people like, I like perfect example. I love watching. Um, I usually have NBC on, we watch the WPTZ local news. I love watching it because they do stories on the local area. They have, you know, our local politicians. They have our local staff or events, like all these things going on. I like watching that. As soon as the national news comes on and, you know, Lester Holt will come on and give the national news. 
I've stopped watching it because in my eyes, it's the one thing I hate is it's a 30 minute program. 28 minutes is doom and gloom, which I know gets ratings. And then it gets to the, the very end and they'll have like this heartwarming little two minute segment on something that was positive. And I kind of look at that. It's just, it's like a broken record that keeps getting played. It's just like, it's, they're on the same topics. They've been on the same topics for months. It's a lot of opinion pieces. They know, like you said, they're focusing on what they want to put out. And then you, like, to me, it's just, it's always negative. It's always negative. It's all, and I know that's what sells because people like that gossip and they like that um, negativity. I, I would much rather just be like, okay, something's happening. What's the facts on it? And then formulate an opinion based on just like clear cut data, which instead of, you know, but I know, it, again, it comes down to that media. It's just tough because there's always going to be a media bias. It may, it may not be actively trying to do that. I do think some of the national ones, that is very much picked and choose as to what they put out. But I think even like locally or, or mid-level, that stuff that comes out is done you know, just because you have the human bias that does come through. Well, the national media will focus on the same number of issues in any given Day. So if you look at the national newspapers, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the three major television networks and the cables, there's only a couple of stories that are the lead stories for a given day. So it's going to be the economy or it's going to be crime or it's going to be foreign affairs. And they each have to cover those um, stories. In the old days, the newspapers would set the agenda for the national networks and they would get on the story. Now it's a little bit more fluid, but every day there's a story that comes out and there's a cycle to it. So economic news is given out Friday morning at 8.30. And so the stations know that. The, each of the networks has a um, reporter at the White House, the White House Press Corps. And they're depending upon the White House spokesman to come out and give them some news for the day so that they can file the story. Each of the networks has a Capitol Hill reporter that's looking at how the bills are gonna pass on Capitol Hill. And if they're lucky, Speaker Pelosi will come out and give them a news conference. And so the networks have to generate stories. And so they have people at the Supreme Court, at the Pentagon, at the White House, and at the Congress. And these people have to generate a story. So the media need a story from the politicians and the government. And the politicians and the government need their story out to the public. So there's sort of an exchange relationship. But after a while, politicians realize that the networks are going to be a little adversarial and they're not gonna give out completely positive coverage. And then there's testiness between a president and the media or a um, member of Congress and the media. So Nancy Pelosi might say to the press like she did yesterday or the day before, you're not getting behind our legislation like you should be. You're not telling the people what's in it. Or President Biden might say to um, a foreign leader, they never stay on point when they ask questions. Trump, as well, was very critical of the media. How presidents have tried to work around this is to get their message directly to the people in the um, country. So I've noticed that Biden gives a lot of early afternoon talks, or rather speeches, from the White House. 
and those are broadcast by the networks. Networks also in search of news will cover the um, committee hearings that you see on Congress. I found it very interesting last week or so when Fox News was covering the January 6th hearings on Capitol Hill because they were hoping to see some, rather, um, let me put it a different way. CNN was focusing more on the hearings that were on January 6th, and um, Fox News was looking for coverage of the southern border. So they each have a couple mm -hmm. of stories that they look at. Yeah. And uh, what, what about when, how does it work with, uh, I'm trying, like, so you're running uh, campaign commercials and campaign, uh, and, and do you do a lot with the campaigns and look into that? Political scientists do, and I consume what they um, do, and I uh, analyze it uh, as well. So when you look at a presidential election, there's three types of states. There's red states that are strongly Republican, there's blue states that are strongly Democratic, and there's battleground states or swing states. Those are states that can potentially go one way or the other in an election. During the 20th century, the three biggest battleground states were Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So then what political scientists do is they look at how many days and how much money have the campaign spent in these battleground states. And so one of the problems we have in New York State is the candidates for president don't spend any money in New York State mm. because New York State is now taken for granted as a blue state. And so if you chart the traveling of Biden and Trump in 2020, you see that in the last week or two of the campaign, they were intensely traveling around Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania was viewed as a swing state that could go to either of the um, candidates. So when President Trump ran in 2016, he was able to turn many swing states toward the Republican Party, and Biden switched it up in the um, last election. But most of the states are fairly consistent in how they um, vote. So um, do you think, so I'm, I'm going back to, in 2016, Trump went to Burlington, and he went to Plattsburgh. Like he had stops at both places. So he was at the Flynn and he was at uh, the Crate Center. So if he was to go, what, what do you think the motive with, of that was? Was it, was it possibly for, at least in our area, was it possibly for like Elise Stefanik? Was it possibly for someplace in, in Burlington, which is a, obviously a blue state too, that he was trying maybe to use it as for another cause? Not really, he knew he was going to lose a state, but could he swing some voters for another agenda? Well, Trump came to um, Plattsburgh, but he came to Plattsburgh in um, April of 2016. And the reason he came to Plattsburgh in April of 2016 was to win delegates to get the Republican nomination for the presidency. How it worked at that time in 2016 was each congressional district in the state, and there's 27, had three delegates to the Republican National Convention. And if you received over half the vote in a district, you would get all three of the convention votes. So Donald Trump came to Plattsburgh because he wanted to win the Republican nomination. So he came to Plattsburgh, he went to Syracuse, and he, 
He went to upstate New York and he won virtually all the delegates in New York State because of that um, strategy. So our district had three delegates and so he came up here for that. Now he liked Plattsburgh and he wanted to come back for the November election, but he was told by his advisors not to because it wasn't going to help him win the general election. So he canceled his general election stop in Plattsburgh, but was only here for the nomination. Now, one thing you hear Trump say is, I'm going to Maine, I'm going to Maine. The reason why he went to Maine is that Maine and Nebraska are the only states in the country in which you win the electoral vote by district, not winner take all. So Maine has four electoral votes. And, and Harvey, before you go on, is that new? Because I saw, I saw those two in the last election where they have like the blue and red like stripes. Is, is that from the last? Because I've never seen that before. It's, it's anomalous that this occurs, but Nebraska has five, five electoral votes and they give it out by districts. So, what, so it is new in the sense that um, we find that happening. So that Nebraska has divided up its electoral votes, I think twice out of the last number of um, elections. The Omaha-Nebraska congressional district is one of five in the state, but they're more prone to vote Democratic. And so they gave their, their electoral vote to the Democrats at least once, so once or twice out of the last three elections. When, um, so Hillary Clinton even campaigned there to try to win the electoral vote. Maine, the same way, has been split. So Trump was very interested in getting the one electoral vote in Maine because you needed 269, um, I guess the number is 270 electoral votes to win. There's 538, 269, 269 is a tie. So he was fearful that he would not get the majority of the electoral vote. So he went to Maine. He loves Maine because he wanted the northern Maine electoral vote. He got that one. So Omaha, Nebraska has also gone Democratic um, once or twice in the last number of um, elections. So when, when did that start, though, the, the districts? What election was that first in? Because oh, I only saw it in 2020. So has, this been, has it been going on for like four elections and it's just always gone one or the other? The splits are relatively um, new. I, I, I saw splits in, um, in Maine and I saw splits in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire split occurred in the first Obama election, I would say. Obama versus McCain was probably where I saw it. But one of the two um, saw it. So that's really um, where I know it from. Do, do you think... I guess, why did they do it that way? And do you think that more states will go that way? Or do you think that all states should go that way? The Constitution allocates electoral votes to each state based upon the number of members of Congress that they have in the House and Senate. So New York State, as of last election, had 27 members of the House and two members of the Senate. So New York State has 29 electoral votes. Florida had 29 electoral votes as well. 
Texas maybe 38 and California 55. So California has lost an electoral vote going forward and Texas has gained and Florida has gained and New York State has lost an electoral vote. But states feel that to magnify the power of their vote, they want their state to be on a winner-take-all basis. And so if it wasn't on winner-take-all basis, states feel that they could be neglected because even if you lose the state, you can still get your share. Historically, the best example of where this really mattered was in um, the year 2000. In the year 2000, when the electoral votes were counted, Bush had um, 246 and Gore had 267. Gore was three electoral votes shy of getting to the 270 and Bush had 246. But Florida had 25 electoral votes in the election of 2000. If Bush got the 25 electoral votes in Florida, he would go from 246 plus 25 to 271 and win the election. And Gore would go 267 plus 0, 267. So when they counted the votes in Florida and recounted, it ended up a 537 vote difference in the state. And that was very disappointing for the Democrats because Ralph Nader, who ran on the Green Party, got 97,488 votes in the state. And research by a professor at Rutgers University showed that Gore would have won Florida going away by 25,000 or more votes if, if um, Nader wasn't on the ballot. But you have a 537 vote difference and the 25 votes of Florida went under the Bush column. So he had 246 plus 25, 271, and Gore came out with his 267. So then they said to Nader, you ruined the election for Gore. He said, no, I didn't. Every vote has to be worked for. There's no vote that can be taken for granted. And people said to Gore, he blew the election. He said, well, it would have helped if I held on to West Virginia or won my home state of Tennessee. So the states like the magnification of their influence because of the winner take all. So in order to switch it, I'm assuming that's, that's a state decision. Like if, if Florida wanted to switch it. And again, the way politics works, I doubt uh, like a New York state that's more democratically controlled is going to want to concede and go back to, you know, ha uh, districts giving out votes because then they go from the winner take all, which are like, it's a slam dunk. We're getting 29 in the electoral college for the Democrats. Why in the heck would we ever want to give up any of that and, and maybe lose eight to the Republicans or whatever that might be. So, I mean, I, I look at it. It's, it's uh it's very tough to change because the only way you're going to change it is if it's advantageous for the group that's not in in the, uh, I, I guess, would have the power in that state. Like California is primarily a blue state. And I doubt, again, they're not going to want to give up votes. Like they can say, hey, we're going to take all 54 or 55 electoral college votes. We want all of it. Like that's, I would say, human nature or where it's like, if you had the advantage, why would you want to give that up and possibly lose it? And I doubt even if all the Republicans in, the, in California wanted it to get some kind of leg up, it would always get shut down because there's not enough, they would never have enough votes to change that. The, the national parties 
allocate seats at the national convention by a formula based upon population and how strong the party is for the state. The national constitution allocates electoral votes to the states based upon the number of seats in the House plus two electoral votes. The states then decide how they want to give out those electoral votes and, and also how they want to choose the electors for the electoral votes. But since the time right past the Civil War, all states have held elections to decide the electoral votes. And all the states, except the two that we mentioned, like to give it out as a winner-take-all. Political scientists say, why don't you give it out in what we refer to as the district plan? You get two at large if you win the whole state, and you get one for each congressional district or given out proportionally, that you take the number of electoral votes that a state has and give it to the proportion of the vote that each of the candidates um, gets. But for reasons you insightfully said, the states are hesitant um, to do that. So, and again, I, I, for obvious reasons, like I said, if you're, you're in control, it's tough to want to relinquish that. Um, now, the electoral so, the electoral college vote. Do you think that that system is still advantageous to the way that they pick elections, or do you think it should be popular? Um, the reason I typically most things you vote for is based on the majority of who votes for it, which we've seen multiple times isn't always the case as the winner. Like you mentioned, two thousand, um, or. Do you think that it makes sense? Because have you ever? I mean, you, I'm sure you have. Have you ever seen the map? When they, they they highlight every county and what it, what if it went Republican or Democrat, have you ever seen that in the state? Yes. And like I would deem three quarters of America or eighty percent of America of the counties typically are red, but then where the most population high density populations around the city typically lean blue. But if it goes because you're voting in the, New York City has most of the people live in New York City. New York City primarily goes blue, so even if ninety percent of the state is red. You're still going to lose out all the votes because of a couple pockets in the state that will vote for one way or the other. So that's why I've always looked at, you know, like in New York State, realistically, you up here, if you vote for someone for the national election for a president, it doesn't really matter because it's going to go one, it, like it, the tides really have to turn for it to go any other way. So typically when I go vote, it's like, hey, I'm really looking at the, the local elections because those are the ones I get more excited about because you see like who locally is going to win. Because whoever you vote for, you can say, oh, I voted for that person or I didn't vote for that person. National scale doesn't matter who I vote for because it's always going to lean blue. So if you're voting for a blue or voting for red, at the end of the day, like New York City is going to carry the state for the most part. So do you think that, that that the system needs to be revamped at some point in time or where it would do the districts? Or do you think it should just always be popular, popular vote within the state to go win or take all? Or should it be the whole national election? Should it just be the popular vote. So then my vote would matter at that. I mean, you could argue it always matters, but realistically on a national scale, if it gets into a massive pool of votes, it carries more weight than going to basically a dead end in New York state one way or the other. Cause you just, you already know what the outcome is going to be. So it's like, I can go, I can go throw my vote in, but it's like, eh, we already know which way it's going to lean no matter what I vote for. Well, when they were writing the constitution in 1787, they, 
created the Office of the Presidency. And that was a big step because under the Articles of Confederation, there was no president of the United States. So then the question came up, how are we going to select the president of the United States? So one gentleman from Pennsylvania, James Wilson, he said, let's do it by popular election. That was not um, accepted. Then others wanted it done by the, by the Congress, that the Congress would choose who the President of the United States was. But then people said, no, that would make the President too dependent upon the Congress and would undercut the separation of powers. Some said, well, maybe the state legislatures. So they didn't really know how to do it. And so they came out with this compromise that each state would have a number of electors equal to its numbers in the Congress, and they had the right to choose who would be eligible to vote or how if they would choose the electors, either through an election or through the state um, legislature. And so it's right in the Constitution. So in order to go to a popular election of the president, you would need to have a two-thirds vote in the House and a two-thirds vote in the Senate, and then ratification in three-quarters of the states. And there's too many states who want to keep it as it is. So realistically, it hasn't been a measure that's um, been thought of that could really um, pass. Some states are talking about voluntarily giving their electoral votes to the candidate that wins a majority of the popular vote, but not enough states have ever signed on to that as well. So, yeah, I got a few things here for you that okay. just, just came up. So, number one, the Electoral College voters. So when someone wins, and I might be wrong on this, but New York State has 29 votes. There's actually 29, in, is it 29 individuals that cast that final vote? So could someone that cast the Electoral College say, I don't care what the state voted for, I'm voting for this person? Or like, how does that work if it's, because it, is it really up to, technically there's individuals that actually carry that vote? Yes. Um, when you vote for president in New York State, you're voting not for the candidate, but you're voting for the slate of electors for that candidate. So when you voted for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, you're voting for the 29 electors that that candidate put forward to be electors for that um, candidate. That's the way it works at the national conventions as well. So In then those electors they have what's called free will of the elector. They can decide how they want to vote. And if they vote contrary to how their state voted, they get the name faithless elector. So a faithless elector is someone who votes contrary to the will of their state. And so, yeah. Has that happened? It happens regularly that in a presidential election, a couple of electors do not vote the will 
of their state. It's usually done in protest. So when I said the number of electoral votes that the presidential candidates get, sometimes it's off by one or two because there'll be an elector that protests. So a couple of Hillary Clinton electors did not follow through across the country, and a couple of Donald Trump electors didn't follow through. But at no time in the country's history did a faithless elector turn the outcome of an election. What would happen if that did happen? Pretty big uproar? It would be a big uproar, and like so many things that occur, we don't really know what would happen because a lot of the processes of American government are worked out as we go along, as we stumble along sometimes. So do you find it... Do you find it, um, or what's your opinion on, let's say, the politicians of 1778? Like, when I look at someone like those people, that those groups are, that a group of people wrote, you know, the documents that we still abide by by today, you know, 200 and whatever years later, 50 years later, we're still looking at those documents and using those to, you know, kind of, run the course of the country, the Articles of Confederation, you know, all these, all these things were done 250 years ago and they had the politicians back then still have created the system that we still use 250 years later. So I, I kind of find it fascinating that that long ago, and maybe it's really not that long ago, I don't know, it just seems in my head like that seems like an archaic time period, but they, they had the wherewithal and the understanding of, of what we have to do to possibly alleviate maybe problems that could come up in the future. Like hypothetically, I'm sure they had like, hey, hypothetically this happened. How would we deal with that? And they come up with all these little nuances that may never come up. But if they were to come up, do we have a, do we have a solution for them that we can establish right now as a baseline? And to me, stuff that was put in place 250 years ago that still kind of, or still really holds true to today and that hasn't been changed or moved much, I think says a lot about their ability to kind of come together and put this this you know very intricate system together that we can still follow and it's still held up over the course of time at least up to this point. So do you, I mean do you feel the same way? Do you feel that hey no actually there was a lot that's been changed or do you feel that like there was a lot of mistakes that they've had to revamp over 200 and whatever it is 50 odd years? At the time of 1787 when they wrote the constitution there were a number of great thinkers who went into that meeting and contributed greatly to the writing of the Constitution. The leading thinker at the time was James Madison. James Madison would become the uh, future president of the United States, but before that, he was a student of the American political process, and he had studied how we could strengthen our government, and he came up with the Virginia Plan. Alexander Hamilton was not as effective at the Constitutional Convention, but he helped bring the Constitutional Convention about. And Madison and Hamilton, John Jay to a smaller extent, wrote the Federalist Papers. And the Federalist Papers were 80-something articles on explaining to the people of New York State why the convention was good. And when I read that, it rings very true. A lot of the things in the 
Federalist Papers describe things that we need in Federal 78, it must have been uh, Hamilton, but it could have been Madison, said that we need judges to have a lifetime of tenure so that they're not pressured by the political currents. And that rings true. Madison talked about separation, ambition checking, ambition. And so it's really all in there. So when I read the Constitution, obviously there were some fatal flaws of the Constitution that were um, there. And some of those fatal flaws have been rectified by the constitutional amendments. The tolerance of slavery was the greatest flaw in the Constitution, and that was ratified that by the 13th Amendment, which did away with uh, slavery. And then another was having the Senate of the United States elected by state legislatures. That was done away with the 17th Amendment in 1913. And so you could go through, and then you see some of the states restricted voting rights. And so amendments went in to expand voting rights for people of both genders, not just males. Amendments went into the Constitution to guarantee the 15th Amendment went in to say that no one could be denied the right to vote based upon race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Amendment dropped the voting age from 21 to 18. And so there's this famous political scientist at Yale University who asked the question, how democratic is the Constitution? And he said there's some real flaws, but a lot of the flaws have been taken care of through amendment. So the Constitution rings pretty true, and they sweated over the details. For example, should the president have a veto over the bills that the Congress passed? In the day, they called that the executive negative. So an executive negative is when the president vetoes a bill. And if they do, should it be qualified or absolute? And they decided, well, he'll have a veto, but the Congress can override it by a two-thirds vote of both the House and the Senate. And there it is. It's never changed, and it's kind of worked through that um, system. Now, we, th we use the term federalism, separation of powers, representative democracy, but you don't see that used many times in the Constitution. The Constitution will not say federalism or separation of powers. The only time it'll say a, rep a Republican form of government representative democracy is when it says the national government will guarantee to every state of the union a Republican form of government. So as I've gotten older, I marvel at how these 55 delegates in the summer of 1787 fought it out at Philadelphia and worked out a system. The smaller states did not want to be swallowed up by the larger states in terms of population. So they insisted on having equal votes. And that was put forth as the New Jersey plan by Patterson of New Jersey. And the larger states, the um, delegates from Massachusetts and, excuse me, the delegates from Virginia and uh, Pennsylvania, Madison, 
and uh, James Wilson, they wanted representation of population. And they compromised and gave the Senate statehood, equal representation of the states, and gave the House population of the states as the basis. So when I look across your lovely uh, window, I see Cumberland Head. But if I looked at Vermont a little bit further, Vermont has two U.S. senators, and New York State has two U.S. senators. Is that fair? The congressional district where we are in now has more population and more land area than Vermont, yet they have the same representation in the U.S. Senate. A small state like Wyoming has the same representation in the U.S. Senate as California. But in the House, we have 27, and Vermont has one. California has 53, and Wyoming has one. So they went along that way. The southern states, they insisted on toleration of slavery. And so there were three provisions in the Constitution that allowed slavery to go on. The writers at the time felt if they wanted the South to, to stay in, they had to go along with it. So the, and that was a three-fifth compromise? The three-fifth compromise was one of those. The second was the fugitive slave provision that a free state would return a um, other state. And the third was that the national government could not limit this, the international slave trade to 1808. So those were the three um, ways in which the Constitution allowed slavery to um, go on. Um, so, what, what's the uh, what's the caucus? What what is a because nobody's ever explained it well. But there's like an Iowa caucus. New Hampshire is that a caucus too, or is it just Iowa? Well, that's um, a very. Because I always find it's funny, like a caucus, but then it's like, is it really like a straw poll and all these like weird things, like? Okay, so a caucus, that's a very um, good question that you um, ask. The question is, how should a state select its delegates to the national convention? And so a couple of smaller states, about 15 now, choose their delegates to the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention to a caucus. A caucus is a series of meetings that is held by a party to choose their delegates. So let's say we were in um, the state of Iowa. We would be at a precinct caucus. The precinct caucus could be held in Hawkins Hall, for example. So in Hawkins Hall, all Democrats from our precinct would meet. And since I have... Um, a particular air of uh, sophistication, they would elect me to be the moderator. And I'd say, thank you for this great honor. It's not something I expected, but I'll try to uh, help. Justice. Yeah, I'll try to help facilitate this. So let me first say welcome to our caucus. All people in this caucus who want to support Bernie Sanders go to the left side of the room. And all people in this caucus who want to support 
I'll go back to 2016 rather than 2020, but Hillary Clinton, go to the right side of the room. Or I could say Joe Biden, go to the right side of the room. All people who want to support, I think it was Martin O'Malley, the uh, mayor of Baltimore, maybe governor, go to the back of the room. Okay, our caucus has five votes to select, five delegates to select to the full county caucus in three weeks. How many are in each group? Bernie has 60 supporters. Hillary Clinton has 40. Martin O'Malley, you have five. I just want to let the O'Malley supporters know you do not have at least 15% of the delegates assembled. Therefore, you cannot qualify for any of the delegates. So you decide, do you want to caucus with the Clinton supporters or the Bernie supporters? Okay. 60% of us assembled are for Bernie Sanders. You get three of the five delegates. 40% of us assembled are for Hillary Clinton. You get two of the five delegates. Now, each of these candidate support groups, I'm asking you now to determine who your delegates will be to the county caucus in four weeks. So then the people who support Bernie Sanders meet, and they decide who they want to go on to represent them at the county caucus on, uh, on county caucus day four weeks later. And so there might be someone who is a Bernie Sanders advocate. He may have had people come over to his house and Bernie talk to them. Or someone might be a Hillary Clinton advocate and they had a candidate tea at their house. So they may say, I would like to be a delegate to the next uh, level. And so they get selected. And then the Hillary Clinton people, they support, they choose their delegates. Then in the old days, the guy would go to the um, public telephone at the school gym or at the school lobby and call in and say the breakdown of our uh, precinct. Now they probably have a, a phone that they have on their own um, person. And that's what a caucus is. In a caucus, they don't do exit polls of voters, they do entrance polls. Because people go in and then they talk for a long time and the media are not able to do the poll when they um, leave. So then if you go to the Iowa caucus as an example, they'll have a county caucus, a, congress a um, precinct caucus, a um, county caucus, a congressional district caucus, then they'll have a state convention. The state convention decides the final allocation of delegates to the national party convention. So if someone said, can you define it? I would say a convention system is a multi-tiered set of meetings in which parties choose their delegates to the state convention. So in what you so that was way more than I thought it was going to be, which which is good. I like the explanation. So caucus, you get five votes. So the Bernie supporters get three, Hillary gets two in that scenario. That's determined because he had sixty percent of the supporters. Yeah, so sixty percent out of the five. Yeah, 60%. made it easy to round. Yep. So in that, we use the scenario you just used. 
when they go to the state caucus, this is typically just for whoever is running against the incumbent that's already president, right? So it wouldn't be, you want to have a Republican and a Democratic caucus at one time? Democrats and Republicans, presidents who run for re-election, typically have an easier re-election bid. So it's very unusual for an incumbent president who's running for re-election to have too difficult of, t of a time these days to get re-elected. In the past, you saw tough re-election bids. So for example, George H.W. Bush, when he was running for re-election in 1992, he had a tough challenge from Pat Buchanan, who was a conservative media personality. And he had a tough time getting renominated and was weakened in that way. But these days, the incumbent president of a party doesn't expect to have too much of a challenge at the Iowa caucus. So the, so the Iowa caucus goes, and that, and we're using the scenario you just said, three votes Bernie, two votes Hillary. So when they go to the state caucus, that county caucus, that's how they split it up. So then when they go to the county caucus, all the precinct delegates meet, and then they vote again. And the precinct then reflects the split that happened in the, the, the county reflects the split that happened in the precinct caucuses within the county. So on caucus night, when the numbers are tabulated, the experts can estimate what the split is between the two or three top candidates, not perfectly, and sometimes they make a mistake in the calculation, but there is a, an estimate. The Iowa caucus really started in 1972, but it became page one news in 1976. In 1976, President Jimmy Carter was out of work. He was a governor of, of Georgia, but his term of office ended two years before the presidential election. And he spent a lot of time cultivating voters in Iowa. He would go all over Iowa and cultivate people at the precinct level. And he did very well in the Iowa caucus, and that gave him a head start in the presidential um, sweepstakes. So since 1976, the Iowa caucus has become an early focus of media attention. Of course, New Hampshire is the first primary election, and it goes back a long time. But in the 1950s, it started to gain luster as the focus of the um, presidential um, bids. Sometimes an incumbent president can do worse than expected in New Hampshire and decide that it's not for them. The big historical case is in 1968. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson was thinking of running for a second full term for which he was eligible. However, he didn't do as well as expected in the New Hampshire primary of 68. And so he decided to withdraw at the very end of March in 68. And Hubert Humphrey ended up winning the nomination in uh, that year for the Democrats. And then Nixon beat Humphrey. Am I thinking the right year, 68? Yes, right? 1968 was a very stressful year for the United States. Of course, it was the year 
that Martin Luther King was assassinated. It was also the year that Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. In fact, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on the night that he won the California Democratic presidential primary. It was either June 5th or June 6th of 1968. So in 1968, Humphrey was very much tied to Lyndon Johnson, and Johnson was not ready to get out of Vietnam. And Humphrey was tied to that. But once Johnson left, Humphrey was able to try to conciliate the anti-war factions and the other dissenters within the Democratic Party. Nixon was running. Nixon had lost the presidential election of 1960. But Nixon wasn't through. In 1962, he ran for governor of California against the senior Brown. And so Jerry Brown's father was also governor of California, and Nixon lost to him for the California governorship in 62. And Nixon said, after he lost, that he's not going to be running again. The press won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But then when he went to Wall Street, he met a couple of political operatives, and he decided he'd run for president in 68, a new Nixon. And so he ran in 68. But there was also a third candidate in 68, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, or maybe the former governor of Alabama at the time. And he ran and won 46 electoral votes. But that wasn't enough to deny Nixon the electoral vote majority that he needed. So Nixon won in 68 and 1972. Um, what would happen if there wasn't, someone didn't hit 270? Say you had three parties and someone didn't get the 270. Then the vote, or there was a tie. Yeah, the, so then the vote would go to the House of Representatives. Historically speaking, that's happened only a um, few times. So let me think. There, there's different ways that these um, things can happen. And people confuse the different ways that it um, happens. Only twice has the U.S. House decided who the president will be. That was in 1800 when there was a tie in the electoral vote and they then decided on Thomas Jefferson and he ran against Aaron Burr. And then in 1824, no one received a majority of the electoral vote as well. And um, the, the, the younger Adams was elected president in 1824, John Quincy Adams. Okay. So then we've had other elections in which the popular vote winner lost the electoral vote. So we had that in 1876 when um, Samuel Tilden won the popular vote but lost the election. And then we had it in 1888 when incumbent President Grover Cleveland lost the electoral vote to Benjamin Harrison. I always told classes, if it ever happened again, we'd probably change the electoral vote system. But then it happened in um, two more recent times. In 2000, when Hillary Clinton, excuse me, in 2000, when uh, George W. Bush won the popular vote and um, Al Gore lost the electoral vote. And then also in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and um, Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. So we've had it four times. So twice the House has been 
chosen by the has chosen the president and four times it's gone into an electoral vote overturning the popular vote. So I call those six problematic elections. Um, but nothing's changed since that because I remember I mean, in 2000, I remember pretty, I couldn't vote in it, but I remember pretty vividly because we're getting to the point we started studying that in school. And then obviously 16, I mean, that, that was, I was, you know, it was only five years ago. So I, you know, I, I, I watched that as an adult. Um, but do, do you think, I mean, those problematic elections, do you think that those, they just kind of leave it as is? Do you think it's, they're really a, it's really not much you can do, right? Because the, the Electoral College always over, overtakes the popular vote. It leaves it as is because, when I look back to the um, aftermath of the election of 2000, there was no interest in the country in changing the electoral vote when the Senate and the House, mainly the Senate, I think, began to um, think about it. What I remember about the 2000 was really a movement to get better voting machines. And Congress passed the HAAV, the Help America to Vote Act, in which money was funded to the states to modernize our elector, our election counting. What was called the, the chads, the hanging chads, or whatever. The, yeah, the hanging chads, and you have to be very careful about the hanging chads <laughs> because they could be affected by the humidity in the room, etc., cetera, <laughs> etc. Cetera. That was very um, difficult. And then you remember that. There really wasn't talk about changing the electoral vote system in 2017. I, I didn't detect much of that at the time. Now, the question you could ask is, why do we have this? And the answer is the concept of wasted votes. If you win a state by a large margin, you're really wasting your vote. So when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016... She won California by a lot of votes, and she won New York by a lot of votes. But Donald Trump won the swing states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and uh, Florida, by smaller numbers of um, votes. Um, do, so I remember it's going into this number, actually one real quick, and then we'll go into this last one. The, do you think Washington DC deserves votes, electoral college? Cause that's been a big thing right now that they're kind of debated. Should they give Washington votes because they district of Columbia votes separate, but doesn't have their own electoral college. Okay. So the, the constitution was amended I'll, to give the district of Columbia electoral votes starting with the election of um, 1964. So when you look at the number of electoral votes that are counted, in the election of 1960, there were 537 electoral votes, 435 for the House, 100 for the Senate, and Alaska and Hawaii, they each got one member of the House for 1959 and 1960. And the U.S. House, which has been at 435 since 1911, was temporarily increased in size to 537. And then in 1964, there were 538 electoral votes. The U.S. House 
went back to 435, we had 100 senators, and the District of Columbia got electoral votes. So since the election of 1964, the District of Columbia has had electoral votes, meaning that they get the number of electoral votes equal to the smallest state. And there's a number of states around the country that have three electoral votes. Maine, excuse me, Maine has four, New Hampshire has four, Vermont has three, Rhode Island has four, but Delaware has one, Alaska, Delaware has three, Alaska has three, Wyoming has three. So they're set at three electoral votes, the District of um, Columbia. What the District of Columbia doesn't have is a member of the U.S. Senate or two members of the U.S. Senate. Oh, that, yeah, sorry, that's your, yes, that's where I was going. And they also have a member of the U.S. House, but the member of the U.S. House is a non-voting member. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the member of the U.S. House from the District of Columbia gets to participate in committee and to work there. But on the floor of the House, Eleanor Holmes Norton, the member of the U.S. House from the District of Columbia, has no vote. So District of Columbia has three electoral votes, no U.S. senators, and a voting, a non-voting member of the House. So do you think they'll ever switch that over? It, it's very fraught politically, because when you look at the election outcomes, the District of Columbia is the most Democratic-leaning constituency in the country. They go 85-90% for the Democratic Party. So if the District of Columbia received two U.S. senators, the Democratic Party for the foreseeable future would receive two more senators. And with a 50-50 Senate, it would give the Democrats the valuable votes they need to control the Senate more easily. As someone who percentages the Senate votes, I like the number 100 because I know my percentages. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure a lot of analysts uh, see it that way. But it's controversial. The District of Columbia, though, is the seat of government. And a lot of people who work for the federal government live in Maryland, the Maryland 8th District, I think it is, is just uh, north, and people live in Virginia. But those who w live in D.C., they get a lot of representation by being around Capitol Hill and uh, the executives. So they offices. have a little bit of like back, a little poll behind the scenes. They get representation in those ways, I would say. Yeah. Um, and last topic that I had that I want to ask you about, because this is number three for you, the political parties. Wasn't it George Washington that basically stated like early on not to have political parties because it could be detrimental to the country? Like I remember, I think I read when he became president, he was not affiliated with any political party. And then that, that didn't last long because then eventually, I think even Adams and Jefferson, they were all political parties. So what, what's your thoughts on that? What's your thoughts on the fact that we have two major political parties? Do you think we're going to have any immersion of a, or a immersion of a third, uh, a real like legit third party system? Um, yeah, so which, I mean, just... Well, you said correctly that all presidents have run as the candidate of a political party, of a major political party, except George Washington. People think George Washington was a Federalist, but he did not run as a party candidate. But then there was a split in the cabinet of George Washington between Jefferson and Hamilton, and Jefferson's followers became Democratic 
dash Republicans or Jeffersonian Republicans, but Democratic Republicans. And the other group became the Federalists. And so in the United States, we've always had a two-party system. Now, the Constitution says nothing about having to win a party nomination in order to get elected to Congress or the presidency or governor of New York State. But in fact, in order to win a race, you most likely, but not always, have to get the nomination of a major party. Again, Bernie Sanders is someone who got elected to the Congress and the U.S. Senate without being a, a member of the two major parties. But 99% higher than that of um, people in Washington are either Democratic or Republican. The Democrats and Republicans have devised ways to allow them to keep this duopoly of power. One of the ways is the way they handle nominations. So let's say you're a really progressive Democrat. Well, do you want to run as a Democrat in the primary and try to win the, the Democratic line on the ballot and entice Democrats to vote for you in November? Or do you want to run as a third-party candidate and run like Ralph Nader and get a very small percentage of the vote? So let's say I'm a very conservative person, I say I better run as a Republican and try to win the Republican nod for Congress so I can win the Republican ballot, the Republican finances, and the Republican voters. And let's say I'm a moderate Republican. I say, well, the only path for me is to run in the Republican primary. So the primaries act as sponges to absorb all manner of opinion in their side of the political spectrum. And so in the Democratic national primaries, you have a Bernie Sanders, who's progressive, and you have a Joe Biden, who was moderate. But the only way the party can win is to bring them all under the tent. And in the Republican Party, you had people who were varied as well. You might have a Mitt Romney, and a Donald Trump, and they decide we're all of the same party or else we're not going to win. And so the parties have used the primaries, the finances, access to the ballot to uh, maintain their um, power. But people on the political left or right feel their way to power is through the parties. So you never hear AOC say, I'm going to run as a socialist. She knows the way to get elected is to run within the Democratic Party and then inherit the Democratic line toward power. Do you think there's going to ever be a third party that, or you just think that the hill is probably too hard to climb right now? Well, I can only go by history. Now, in history, there's been replacements of parties at different times. And so if I was going to school in the 1840s and 1850s, they'd say, well, we have two major parties. We have the Democrats and the Whigs. But the Whigs broke apart, and the Republicans became the second major party in the country and took over in the 1850s when um, Lincoln won the second uh, Republican election in 1860. And so since 1860, but earlier, 1852, the Democrats and Republicans 
have won all the presidential elections. The only time that one of those two parties came in as low as third was in 1912 when the Republicans finished um, in third place. So it's, to use your word, it's a tough climb, an uphill battle for a third party to replace one of the major parties. The better strategy is for a candidate desirous of winning office to colonize the major party in which they feel they fit better. Um, do you find that is is there a possibility that someone can almost I say buy an election but get to the point where cause I think there was like rumblings of when uh, Michael Bloomberg ran and he was just pumping out millions of dollars for all these campaign commercials for 2020 and then got up on stage during the during the debates and pretty much got crushed and I think he was pretty much out of it after the first debate because nobody had heard from him. And Michael Bloomberg, obviously one of the richest people in the world, you know, they're kind of joking. Can you just strike a check for $5 billion and become the president? Like, you know, like, hey, I'll give, just give you a bunch of money. Just have me become president. And that didn't work. But you're starting to see, um, you know, obviously Donald Trump was not a politician or was not a, a regular politician. He was came from the private kind of sector and went into it. And then you start see, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, you start seeing these people that um, – are running for office based on the name we've heard like Oprah being tossed around like you know that they have that 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 uh that popularity but maybe aren't aren't the most polished from a political standpoint but then they're almost a a brush of fresh fresh air from the political scene where could you get someone like a you know kind of a political outsider that maybe has leadership skills in other parts and other sectors of to to come in and, and replace like a a career politician or someone that's been in the field but might bring and Donald Trump's a business savvy or someone that might come more from like a, um, you know, maybe a charitable or, or organizational background, you know, into the into the mix. Do you think that we're going to start seeing more of that or do you think it's still going to be more of the political scene? Because I, I look at like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, Donald Trump's the most famous of doing that, but Arnold Schwarzenegger even was it, um, who is the guy from Minnesota, uh, uh, Jesse Ventura? He was a, he was a ex wrestler that got in there, and you start looking at these people that that are getting in that had a background that wasn't really politics, but they had the popular popularity to get in there. That's what um, political scientists call a celebrity candidate. A celebrity candidate is someone who makes their reputation outside of politics, and so for a while, people said astronauts are going to go into politics, and so Pens- so um, Ohio- or even, uh, Eisenhower, right? Being a general? That, okay, so when you look at what qualifies you to be president, the military, that's an earlier era. And since the president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, we had a history earlier in American life of generals going into um, the presidency. Of course, you had George Washington, you had Andrew Jackson, you had General Grant, you had others in the 18 George Washington, yeah. 1840s. And then Eisenhower was the last general to go and become a president. And so we, we had that. So the military was an earlier route to the presidency. The last one who dabbled with it was Colin Powell in 1995. But he did not put his... Um, had in the ring for the nomination in 1996. The others that you mentioned are not military, 
but they're celebrity candidates. And there you have people who were astronauts, like with John Glenn. Mm -hmm. There are other senators who did that. There are people who were in show business. Now, Ronald Reagan used his show business reputation to get elected governor of California. And he used governor of California to become a stepping stone to then run for president of the United States. So he didn't go directly from show business into the presidency. Then you have business. And that's where Ross Perot ran in 1992 as a third-party candidate. And in 92, he financed himself and came in third, but got 18 to 19 percent of the vote, which was the highest vote for a third-party candidate since 1912. And in 1912, it was a former president, Teddy Roosevelt, who received um, that. And so Trump was a business person. But for his whole life, Trump has been interested in running for president or vice president. They showed clips from 1988 when he was asking people if he should be the VP for uh, George H.W. Bush. So he's been interested in politics for a while. And his issues were being cultivated, such as America first on trade agreements with foreign countries. Just like I'm told Ronald Reagan, before he got into politics, would make a lot of speeches and host television shows in which he talked about a free enterprise system. Yeah, like, I mean, I've, you hear, like, I've heard the Oprah, Oprah tossed around. I've heard The Rock tossed around, Dwayne Johnson. I've heard, you know, like, uh, even down, like, I don't know if you, like, uh, I don't know if you know who uh, Jocko Willink is. He's an ex, he's a... Um, Military. He was in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. He was a, like a SEAL commander at the time, and is kind of now becoming kind of like a a celebrity amongst like the military ranks and starting to branch out in other places. That you hear like these people might run for office, and you look at it from some of them were leadership. Like I would say, Oprah, her she's obviously run many things, and and then you look at the, you know the Rock, who's got a lot of celebrity, and I think a lot of people like him because he just seems like a likable guy, and I think he's very accepting of a lot of people. And then he's obviously part of businesses, so he has a little background. And then you look at Jocko, who led like a military, kind of probably like Eisenhower, um, who wasn't a general, but he was he was very high up in the in the uh, in the Navy and the SEALs. So you look at those that they have like the background of, of leadership, maybe not politics, but of leadership. And then you kind of put those together, and it's like, is that going to eventually where people just get tired of politics and then want to grab somebody that like, come on, Oprah, please run because we don't want to vote for, you know. Joe or or Donald or or whomever might be running in the next elections, where they like we just don't want to listen to the same stuff. We want someone that's different, and you know. And I don't know if that's you know some of those people. It's like, do you really want to throw your hat in the ring? Like Oprah might be like, yeah, I'm good. You know, like I got a good life. I got this company. I'm not getting yelled at. I'm not getting. I'm not being polarized and all this because, I mean, it takes a special person to want to be put into public office. Like all your skeletons come out of your closet. People start going anywhere. They start making up accusations, and like you basically get dragged through the mud your entire you know entire time. And you try to come out on the other end with the least amount of battles. Like I would say, like like someone like a Barack Obama probably came out with very little scar tissue from the presidency as other ones have. You know, like Clinton obviously came out with a lot, and George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump. Like so, it just seems like you know the, to get in those positions, you gotta like it's weird. I don't know like everybody would actually want that position. Well, the military and politics, 
has shifted through the years. So there's some people who are generals, and we highlighted them, but in presidential politics for most of American history, it was expected that you would be in the military. Not that you would necessarily be a general, but that you would be in the military. So for example, George H.W. Bush, he was a World War II hero. He was shot down while he was a fighter pilot. And John Kennedy was PT-109. He led his men in a um, PT boat and um, was injured. And so most of the presidents would have or would point to some military service. But that really changed with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was born in 1946, and George H.W. Bush was born in 1924. That's a 22-year span of difference. Bush was a World War II hero. Clinton actively avoided military service during the Vietnam War and went to Vietnam. But that was overlooked when he ran for office and he became president. People said that W. Bush had not served in the military, but he was doing it through a reserve obligation. And since then, people haven't expected our presidents to actively have military service. So when Barack Obama was elected, no one said, you weren't even in the military, why should you be president? So the requirement to be in the military in order to be president of the United States is no longer there, but it used to be there to some degree. And even if you didn't have a stellar military career, you still had to say how you supported the U.S. during the um, troops um, during World War II. However, a lot of military have been welcomed into Congress traditionally. So after World War II, a lot of the military veterans went into the U.S. Congress, be it John F. Kennedy again or Gerald Ford or others. And service in World War II was a pathway to getting into the Congress. That fell off as the Vietnam generation started to take over the country. But now there's a movement of both parties to recruit people with military experience into the ranks of the House and Senate. There's a feeling that we need their views to be heard and that their culture and that their experience should be valued. And so both parties now are interested in recruiting people with military service. But as in any profession, there are stepping stones. So instead of running for the presidency right away, it would be preferable for people to start off with the House and then you build the base and then you could run for the Senate. And so there's been a move to incorporate more military into the Congress. Um, well, Harvey, again, for time and also for my bladder, um, is there any, anything else that you want to touch on or anything that we didn't touch on? Because well, you answered a lot of my questions. Actually, I'm, I've learned a lot in this conversation. Well, I'm very happy you invited me, but I'm not going to press my luck with you, so I'll let you <laughs> off at this point. You, you, I was going to say, if you want to fill some time, you're more than welcome to. This is, this is great. It's, it's, are, do you still want to go a few more minutes? 
I'm, if you let me go to the bathroom, I can come back and you can talk about anything you want for about two minutes. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> want to restrict your personal freedom. <laughs> so well, usually, usually my friends run out. I'm like, I'll just talk for two minutes, three minutes. Just come back and I'll be good to go. And I just, I just ramble about whatever we were talking about. But I find that most of the stuff that you have talked about. It's like things I've always had questions on, and again, just kind of leaning into, kind of looking at your your uh, your wealth of of, of uh, I guess accomplishments over the last forty you know some odd years. That um, having seen many elections, having seen many like you said um, voter behavior, how it's adapted and changed, and just things that we're seeing is um, it's cool. Like I, I think, do you find that you get to look back at what you've learned over since you know the late seven or mid to late seventies? To now and just like, hey, I've I've seen a lot of cycles go through, and it allows you to make you know cool observations just because you have that experience. Where you're like, hey, you know, like I lived through the '80s, I lived through the '90s, I lived through the you know the '70s, and and even before you were in political science, just like growing up as you know a young adult, like being able to vote. I have to agree with that. And one thing I marvel at is how the concepts I learned when I was studying political science are with me. And I realize the importance of the political science education where I was instilled with concepts that allow me to analyze and understand what's happening in um, current events. And so it's very useful in that way. And of course, the time dimension. And so you can see the cycles of politics starting at the national level you know how the presidency is going to work. So you know that the president is going to start off with a honeymoon period, then the press is going to get more critical, then the president's going to get uppity, then the approval is going to go down, then the party's going to lose seats at midterm, and then they're going to have another cycle. Then you know it's going to go from Iowa to um, New Hampshire, and then it's going to go to South Carolina, so you know how it's going to come out. But it always keeps you on the toes because you never know, you can't predict that this politician is going to make this mistake or that this issue is going to arise. But a lot of the things um, you know is going to happen. You know you got to be there on the TV to watch the State of the Union address. You're going to have to be there to watch on TV when the budget's late, you kind of know the pattern. What uh, what like what is first Tuesday in November for you? Like election day? Is that like a, is that like a national holiday for you? Well, as a political science guy, like I don't like to correct you because this is your office. Is it the first, what is it, first Thursday? First Tuesday? It's the Tuesday following the first Monday. Oh, th- there we go. So it can't happen on, happen on November 1st. It hap- has to happen on the Tuesday following the first Monday of November. <laughs> okay. So, I did not know that. Yeah, That's so it. I was proofreading a book for, um, an, for a, uh, a textbook writer company, and I think the person had that a mistake. But it's the Tuesday following the first Monday of November. That was put into law in 1845 as the national election day. Um, So that is a big day. And um, that that is historically a big day. That's your Super Bowl of the year. Yes. Kind of. I mean, I don't know if you're a football guy, but this might be your Super Bowl. Well, I don't have much of a stake in the outcome, but it's a a busy uh, day. But 
election day tends to be quiet. And so there's a lot of run-up to election day nationally, congressionally, but on election day, it quiets. It's kind of like and, the eye of the storm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And people go to the polls and uh, vote. <laughs> so now election day to me means getting the exit polls as quickly as I can get them. And then I could break down how people voted. So you do get to nerd out a little bit that day. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you want to get the exit polls. They don't release them till late at night. But I want to get the exit polls see how each group voted, see how states voted, and um, be ready um, with that. That's great. Well, um, Harvey, I appreciate you coming on. This was great. Like I said, I, I had never met you. I had some good people say good words about you. Had you, and I, Based on the research and talking to you, I said, I, like I said, I'm a big fan. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you, you know, I guess – Exp- taking your knowledge and giving it to young people that come to the university. And- oh, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, go ahead. What did you study at Plattsburgh State, and when were you there? Uh, I went. Um, so, oh my god, I'm trying to get the times here. So, fall of 2008 is when I went in as a freshman, and that's when I had Dr. Mallory during. An, it was a national issues class, which was um, in, in the honor in Hawkins. And then I graduated in December of 2011 um, in global supply chain management with a minor in international business and business and business, something else, business administration. No, not business, business management, whatever, whatever the general term was. So I, but global supply chain management, and international business was like my two fields. I never did anything with the, like that degree. Um, but yeah, that's why I ended up studying. So I never took any political science. I think I would have liked political science. It just at the time it was like I just it never fit in what I needed to do. Well, it's a very good major that you had, and supply chain now is the hot topic. Yes, it's getting it's getting bit bigger and bigger. And I, I uh, certain things didn't like. I just never ended up going in that field. But I think that it's very. It's, it was an interesting topic. It was po- it was popular. I had a uh, um, Brian Neuruther. Are you familiar with Brian? He was my uh, advisor at the time and one of my professors and super nice guy and. Um, you know, I had some other professors at the time and I enjoyed it. Took a lot of accounting, took a lot of business, took financing, took all the, you know, a lot of the major categories or I mean, uh, business, whatever you want to call those, uh, not select, you know, uh, general business. And then I kind of went deep dived a little bit more into supply chain. But, um, I think I did take a political science as, as one of my gen eds early on, but it was just, wasn't my major. So I never pursued it, but I, I'm always, I, I don't like polit I, I don't like, like the, the, all the bad parts of politics, but I do, I do value the stuff you talked about. I really am always interested in, in the history of politics in, in the United States and how things work. And I love election day, um, purely because I just, I just, I don't know. I like, I like pop, pop it on the news and seeing who won and, and, you know, seeing how all that work and all that craziness, what it actually amounted to probably from a very layman's outsider perspective of like doing my own very, you know, uh, amateur, um, political science analogy of what's going on you know and i don't deep dive in everything but it's still you still get a little you know it's still an event and you still get caught up in it and it's still cool so uh but to hear a much better mind talk about it than myself that i appreciated this it was fun well your mind is better in other fields yeah. as well so i'll let it go <laughs> no that. That, absolutely so um what uh harvey i appreciate it very much um if anybody needs to get in touch with you, I'm, I'm sure they can do it just yeah. kind of looking you up online and through yeah. Plattsburgh State. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this tremendously. Um, 
Thank you so much. That is episode 166 of the Galen Trombley Show. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.